Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, February 23rd, 2023, the 764th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So today I want to talk about how we see ourselves and how other people see us, and not just as individuals, as countries, as movements, however you want to describe it, the view we have of what we're doing versus the view other people have of what we're doing, because they often are not the same. And which one is right? Maybe they're both right. Maybe neither of them are right. 
maybe parts of each present the most accurate story, the most objective story about what we're doing. But is there an objective story about what we are doing, or is it only a matter of perception? Which view should we prioritize when we are considering doing more of something or less of something? Should we be changing our behavior if what we are attempting to do with the way we see ourselves, if we are projecting that in a way that creates the perception in other people that we are doing something different than what we believe we're doing? Are we acting incorrectly? Are we misunderstanding how our actions look to other people? Or are the other people misperceiving what it is we're doing? Now, if we're acting on solid moral principles and on good information and exercising our best judgment and living authentically, then the way that we're acting should be pretty well aligned with how people believe that we are acting. And of course, this isn't some perfect science. We're never going to be right about this all the time. And even our best laid plans with our best intentions might affect someone in a negative way that we did not anticipate, did not expect, did not want. And the thing we've done that we believe is legitimately good is viewed by someone else as legitimately bad and both sides have a point. But what's important is that we are actually examining these questions and trying to determine whether or not the things that we do and have done are creating the effects in the world that we intend. And so first we look at the results of our words and our actions, but it's also important to understand from other perspectives how those words and actions are being perceived. Because if we believe that we are doing the right things for the right reasons, and they're not being taken that way, well, then we have a problem, maybe a little problem or maybe a big problem, depending on the importance of what we are doing and who we're doing it for. If what we're doing continues to produce bad outcomes or perhaps even moral problems, then perhaps we need to examine our behaviors and reassess what our principles are, why we're doing the things that we're doing and saying the things that we're saying. But at the same time, we cannot live for other people. We have to live in a way that is authentic and principled and rational according to us, ultimately. And we need to be prepared to be perceived negatively by other people, perhaps most other people, when we believe authentically and truly that we are doing the right thing. We can't allow ourselves to be constrained from doing what's right simply based on how others will perceive it. And we can see what that actually looks like in the world right now. This is the underlying principle of the party of false decorum. You act in a way that the large group or the group in power finds acceptable or maybe even honorable because the goal is to increase the social credit gained through your words and actions in order to impress people in higher status positions so that one day they might pull you up to their level of status and that will be, in some sense, success. So we don't want to act simply for the reason that other people will be impressed with our actions, especially not when social norms call for us speaking and acting in ways that violate our own principles. But at the same time, you have to give the other side a vote 
Because if you don't, then you're ignoring the feedback necessary in determining the true effects of what it is you're doing. So with that in mind, let's talk about our friend Sam Harris. And just as a caveat, I used to read Sam Harris. I used to follow Sam Harris. I used to listen to his podcasts. I was a big fan of Sam Harris. And then reality struck me about who and what Sam Harris is and what he represents. And it's become clear that Sam Harris is basically just a slightly lower level Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval Noah Harari is basically the philosopher king of the World Economic Forum and the global communist movement at large. He's the one constantly telling everyone how wonderful the future will be once we fully embrace the dystopia they've prepared for us, where we will own nothing and be happy, where they can track us under the skin. And where the vast majority of the population are useless eaters. This is all in Yuval Noah Harari's philosophical construct. He talks about this stuff. I'm not making up what he supports. It's there in his own words. You can read his books. You can watch videos of him speaking. I am not misrepresenting his positions. It's not a conspiracy theory. Now, you might remember about six months back, Sam Harris did an interview with the podcast Trigonometry, and he talked about censorship, Twitter's censorship, the effort to censor the stories around the Hunter Biden laptop. And Sam Harris had a bunch of preposterous quotes in that interview. I talked about that at length on two episodes of this podcast. This is all from back in late August. So if you want to listen to those, you just go to the Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. Click archive, put Sam Harris in the little search feature, and you will find them. His most memorable bit of that podcast was when he was talking about how the social media platforms were totally justified in censoring the stories about the Hunter Biden laptop because anything was justifiable if it stopped Donald Trump from being president again, including a vast conspiracy by the Democrat Party with the media and the tech companies to censor that story. He said that it was so important to keep Donald Trump out of the office that he didn't care if Hunter Biden's laptop contained pictures of the dead bodies of children in a basement. It was still necessary to censor it because Joe Biden absolutely had to be president. Donald Trump was just too dangerous. And Sam Harris got blown up pretty hard all across the Internet, most particularly on Twitter. And he did a follow up podcast to explain what he had said before and let everyone know that not only was he right the first time he said it, but he's actually more right now that he is considered the criticism from the other side. His perception of himself was that he was exactly right. Everybody else's perception of him was that he was a moral monster. He decided that other people's perception of him was irrelevant. All of them were wrong, and he doubled down on his position. And he is certainly welcome to do that. He has done it throughout his career, often very successfully. And you have to respect him at least a little bit for being willing to say whatever he thinks is right, even if everyone else hates it. But the problem with Sam Harris and the problem with being in the party of false decorum generally is that even in 
the construct I was discussing before your view of yourself, other people's view of you, Sam Harris's view and the party of false decorum's view is skewed even within that because they don't care about the perception of other people at large. It doesn't bother them that 80% or 90% of normal people think what they are doing is immoral or irrational because they don't care about 80 or 90% of normal people at all. They don't believe normal people should get a say even in normal people's own lives. In the party of false decorum, you only care about impressing the people who can help you achieve greater social status. And of course, that's what Sam Harris wants. Sam Harris wants to be part of that special club at the end, to be fully one of the elites on a global scale. He wants to be the sort of person who gets to determine who the useless eaters actually are. So he cares about his perception of himself, and he cares about the perception of him according to the power center of the global regime, and he does not care at all about the perception of him from absolutely anyone else. And you might think that I'm being a little hard on him or not giving him the benefit of the doubt, but again, I am extremely familiar with his work. I've read all of his books, listened to countless hours of his podcast. I've watched him give speeches. I've seen him in debates and in group conversations with other very serious intellectuals. But apart from that, Sam Harris actually will come out and say these things himself. And I'll get to that in a second. But before that, it's worth noting that Sam Harris took himself off of Twitter a few months ago in response to Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Now, of course, he portrays this action as an act of protest to draw public attention to the fact that Elon Musk is now giving a platform to the worst and stupidest and most evil people in the entire world, according to Sam Harris and the power center of the global regime. It's far more likely that Sam Harris took himself off Twitter so that people could not look up his past tweets and use them against him. Because Sam Harris has said some truly reprehensible stuff, all derived from the false reality, particularly when it comes to COVID and to Donald Trump. Sam Harris actually ended relationships with many of his fellow public intellectuals because they were disputing various parts of the COVID narrative. They didn't even go so far as to support Donald Trump or like Donald Trump or talk about election fraud. COVID was enough for Sam Harris. So Sam Harris has quit Twitter technically, but not emotionally. In fact, when it comes to Twitter, Sam Harris basically acts like a spurned ex-boyfriend, like Twitter dumped him and has moved on with Twitter's life. Twitter has found a new relationship with exactly the kind of person that Sam Harris hates. And Sam Harris needs to let everyone know how bad Twitter is now. And to do that, he has begun creating little graphics of his own quotes and then posting them on Facebook. So Twitter has been ruined by Elon Musk and Facebook is still a okay. The other day, Sam Harris posted this on his Facebook. This is one of those graphics with a quote from Sam Harris. And he says, 
The only people who think Twitter is the public square are those who are addicted to it. So after Sam Harris has spent years and years calling Twitter the digital public square, he is now claiming that this framing of Twitter only applies to people who are addicted to Twitter. In fact, if you are calling Twitter the public square, it means you are addicted to Twitter. You think Twitter is far too important. Not like Sam Harris, who knows that Twitter is now meaningless. He feels like Twitter has cheated on him. He broke up with Twitter. And now he believes no one else should ever be with Twitter in the future. He's feeling very dejected and he doesn't get his constant positive feedback loop that was provided to him under the censorship regime. But Sam Harris took it even further yesterday. He put up another little graphic quoting himself, and he said, During the pandemic, we witnessed the birth of a new religion of contrarianism and conspiracy thinking, the first sacrament of which is to, quote, do your own research. The problem is very few people are qualified to do this research, and the result is a society driven by strongly held, unfounded opinions on everything from vaccine safety to the war in Ukraine. And you can accurately guess for yourself, if you're not familiar, what Sam Harris's views are on both subjects as a card-carrying member of the global elites. The first thing worth noting here is that Sam Harris is a member of a group called the New Atheists that kind of popped up in the early 2000s. And I have read all their work. I myself was an atheist. I've talked about this many times. And within that, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and Richard Dawkins were called the four horsemen of the new atheist movement, and they accepted that label. Arguing against the existence of God was a big part of their intellectual work. It wasn't the only thing that three of them did. It was primarily the only thing that Sam Harris did, but this was a thing for them. So Christopher Hitchens, one of the members of this little group, actually has a book called Letter to a Young Contrarian and encourages contrarianism in all cases, essentially, regardless of your opinion about his views on God. Christopher Hitchens was a very smart and insightful man and also an extraordinary debater. His argument in favor of contrarianism is not only compelling, it's something that I have stuck to in many ways for 15 or 20 years. And I imagine that my parents would tell you it's something that I've done my whole life. So it's odd to see Sam Harris come out against contrarianism when Contrarianism is essential unless you are only determined to enforce groupthink. And again, as a card-carrying member of the global elite, or at least a global elite wannabe who argues in favor of the censorship regime, enforcing collective groupthink is something that actually really appeals to Sam Harris. But leaving that aside, consider what Sam Harris is actually saying here. He's saying that people are not qualified to do their own research and come to their own conclusions. In every case, they should and must defer to experts because experts are the only people capable of doing this sort of research. For instance, do masks work? 
Well, we can't make that decision ourselves because we can't look at a virus in quotes in a lab and determine whether or not this virus's particular features have the ability of penetrating our masks, of going through the masks. We must know something particular about this virus to know whether or not masks work. And because we can't, for instance, see them in a lab, we can never know. That question is unknowable to us. So we have to defer to the experts, no matter what it is the experts say, if they come down and say that masks could help even a tiny, tiny bit, it's worth it. No matter what, everyone should be wearing a mask. That's what the experts say. You ignore the experts that disagree with that. That's part of never doing your own research. And you just mask up. But the thing is, you actually don't need expert level scientific research to know whether or not masks work. You also don't need it to know whether or not we're in a pandemic. If people aren't dying all over the place, just dropping over dead, like they were on those videos from China, we're probably not in a pandemic. Whatever it is everybody's catching is mostly just fine. In fact, if the TV wasn't telling us we had a pandemic, if the experts weren't telling us we were in a pandemic, we wouldn't have known that we were in a pandemic. The only research necessary to determine that is to look outside. Hey, everyone seems fine, including the vast majority of people who get COVID. For normal people, that would be case closed. But that doesn't push the agenda that Sam Harris pushes. So therefore, that insight that anyone can draw simply from the world is totally invalid. That doesn't count as research. Only high-level research by experts in institutions qualifies as research. That is the research we must obey. If that research doesn't align with the broader agenda, then the people conducting that research are unqualified or perhaps lying and they should be ignored. But at no point are you qualified to do research about a virus or a vaccine. And he also mentions Ukraine. Apparently, you have to be an expert to understand what's going on in Ukraine. And since we're not experts, we're not at the State Department or the CIA or part of the military industrial complex, because those are the experts on this situation, then we're not allowed to have our own position on the war in Ukraine, much less express it. We're not qualified to do that research. And because we're not qualified to do the research, we can't even express opinions like war is bad or the United States does not have an interest in where the eastern border of Ukraine is drawn. The research from the experts say the eastern border of Ukraine is one of the most important issues in the entire world. And since they're the only people qualified to express a position on this then it is everybody's duty to accept what they say and just go along with it no matter what. You see some Nazis in Ukraine? Hey, the experts say those aren't the bad kind of Nazis because the comedic actor who is installed as president of Ukraine is himself a Jew, so they can't be the bad kind of Nazis. These are actually the good Nazis. That's what the experts say. You have to go along with it. 
eventually you see that what Sam Harris is doing is just making an argument against thinking for oneself because Sam Harris doesn't believe you are even qualified to do that. Only people like Sam Harris are qualified to do that. Sam Harris not only went to college, he went to a little grad school too, and he has written books and he gets to speak at the Aspen Institute. Therefore, he is qualified to weigh in and is happy to weigh in regardless of how that seems to 80 to 90% of normal people. Because the people of higher status than Sam Harris in the global regime love what Sam Harris is saying. He is impressing the people he needs to impress. His view of himself is as the best and brightest, most informed and moral person to possibly be speaking on this issue. He has gathered the opinions of all the relevant experts and synthesized those into his own perfect viewpoint. So Sam Harris is doing the right thing and his words and actions are being approved of by the only people whose views Sam Harris cares about. Therefore, everyone else is wrong and doesn't matter and shouldn't be allowed to weigh in at all. They should not think for themselves and they should not be allowed to speak in public the product of their own thought. Because they simply are not qualified. And so Sam Harris has built himself his own little cage, this informational bubble, where the only views that exist and matter are the ones that fit inside that bubble. Anything from outside of it doesn't go into Sam Harris's calculations at all, either before he says or does something or after he says or does something. The fact that people are willing to challenge statements and actions from authority means that they are being contrarians simply for the sake of contrarianism. And they're so bold in this and so committed to this that contrarianism itself has become now their own religion. Sam Harris is basically describing a cult of contrarianism, which should be immediately recognized as self-refuting. A fundamental commitment to contrarianism basically means you can't be part of a cult because the cult wouldn't work. He's describing a cult where the fundamental principle of the cult is thinking for yourself, which is especially funny for a person who has argued at length many times throughout the years that atheism is not a religion. And I'm not going to argue that it necessarily is. But to pretend that contrarianism and thinking for oneself is a religion while atheism is not is undeniably stupid, especially when Sam Harris has a massive share of his own faith based beliefs, because trusting the science and trusting the experts in the face of them being constantly wrong cannot be described as anything other than a faith based belief. In scientism, Sam Harris does not believe that people can be trusted to think for themselves. And of course he doesn't, because all those people whose own thoughts Sam Harris gets to hear in terms of that feedback are giving Sam Harris extraordinarily negative feedback, particularly within the last few years, not as much before. Sam Harris does not care about how most of the world sees him. Because he views normal people in every way 
as beneath him and unqualified to express their views. And you can imagine how that would play out on an uncensored Twitter. And all of a sudden, it makes sense why Sam Harris left and why he feels so dejected. So let's expand to a larger, more global scenario and keep in mind our perception of ourselves and how we portray ourselves and everyone else's perception of what we are doing, or maybe more appropriately, what's being done in our name. So yesterday, Donald Trump went to East Palestine, Ohio, the location of the train derailment and the chemical disaster, the uncontrolled burn that now apparently has chemicals spreading all over eastern Ohio, into Pennsylvania, into the Ohio River, which could end up contaminating the water supply, potentially the food supply, and the people of East Palestine are seeing their health negatively affected by what's going on, according to the reports. So Trump lands in East Palestine. He meets with the city officials there. He meets with a bunch of the residents. He brings in supplies. He brings in water. He goes to McDonald's and invites everybody to McDonald's and buys them all the McDonald's they could ever eat. And it seems like everybody loves President Trump because everybody does love President Trump except for people who are addicted to that central narrative, to the mainstream media narrative. They accept the framing of Donald Trump as a person, even people who like what Donald Trump did and who may have voted for Donald Trump still believe that the media's portrayal of Donald Trump as stupid and narcissistic, egomaniacal, hell-bent on power and personal profit is essentially true. And then they just argue that they like Donald Trump's policies, but not Donald Trump the person. And if you're an elitist or an elite wannabe, that makes a lot of sense. That is a very acceptable viewpoint in elite circles. You can like Donald Trump's policies. They're not the right ones to like. But if you're not going to toe the line on this issue, at least it's only about the policies. If you say that you like Donald Trump the person, well, then you're getting kicked out of the party of false decorum. But normal people do like Donald Trump, and it's because of things like this. It's because he does authentically connect to normal people. That 80 or 90 percent that would find Sam Harris deplorable, you know, the deplorables, those kinds of people, they actually love Donald Trump because they can see through Donald Trump's words and Donald Trump's actions, that he actually does care about them. And the media knows this, which is why besides Tucker Carlson, the rest of the mainstream media completely ignored this event, except to deride it, except to say that Donald Trump was doing this as a political stunt. He's actually taking advantage. He's just trying to show up Joe Biden. He doesn't really care about the people of East Palestine. And the way they prove that is by blaming the train derailment on Donald Trump. And that's what the mainstream media chose to do yesterday in order to divert attention from Trump's visit and make it so that even if Donald Trump's visit is well perceived by the people on the ground in East Palestine, Ohio, at least everybody else, the people who really matter, 
know that Donald Trump is not doing a good thing. In fact, it's because of Donald Trump that the bad thing happened in the first place. My friend Patriots in Control has been putting together a bunch of these graphics this week, compiling the headlines from mainstream media. And here's one from yesterday. Yahoo News has a headline that reads, Trump set to visit East Palestine after cutting rail regulations as president. Politico says, a political stunt. Trump's Ohio visit revives questions about his own safety legacy. HuffPost writes, political opportunity. After weakening critical rail safety rules, Trump heads to East Palestine. The Washington Post says Trump to visit Ohio amid political showdown over train derailment. The Inquirer, Trump will return to the scene of his crime when he visits Ohio toxic train wreck. And The Independent, Trump Ohio visit live. Trump accused of train derailment stunt as Norfolk Southern CEO dodges questions. So Trump is doing something that he surely believes is principled, necessary, and authentic. The people most directly connected to his actions and to his words also believe he is doing something principled, necessary, and authentic. But the response from people like Sam Harris that believe fully the opinions of those normal people don't matter at all, including the people on the ground in East Palestine, right? It doesn't matter if they think Donald Trump is doing the right thing and doing a good thing. Donald Trump is still the worst person ever. So they're simply wrong about their own experience, according to people like Sam Harris, because they shouldn't be thinking for themselves. Expert opinion says Donald Trump is the worst person in the history of the world. If you think he's good, that means you're wrong. And to people within the party of false decorum, that's all they care about. So they agree that Trump is bad. Not only was his visit unnecessary, unprincipled and inauthentic, he's just doing it for show. It's a political stunt. He's also responsible for the train derailment in the first place. The goal of the global regime and the global state propaganda media is to put their perspective, the perspective of this tiny number of people who believe they speak in expert opinion, that they can speak for the good of everyone, needs to be on par with all the people they're pretending to speak for, enforcing the idea that their perception of Trump's words and actions actually accounts for how everyone should perceive Trump's words and actions. And they project their point of view to the world as the point of view of Americans generally. They pretend at least to speak for all of us. And they're doing the same thing when it comes to Ukraine. Viva Fry on Twitter made a similar graphic compiling a bunch of the tweets and the statements from the regime about the anniversary of the Ukraine war beginning, which comes tomorrow, and the celebration of Defend the Fatherland Day today in Russia. Here are some of those tweets and statements. The White House tweeted, one year after Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, President Biden traveled to Kiev to meet with President Zelensky. Here's how it happened. And they have a picture and all that special stuff. MTV, for some reason, is weighing in. One year after Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, countless questions are on the minds of young Ukrainian refugees. Don't leave me behind. 
Stories of Young Ukrainian Survival tells their stories. Watch tonight at 10 p.m. They made a TV show about it. An account called Building Back Together wrote, when Putin launched his unprovoked and brutal invasion nearly one year ago, he thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided, but he was dead wrong. POTUS will continue to stand up for democracy and support the people of Ukraine. A couple of days ago, the fake president, Joe Biden, tweeted from the at POTUS account. And obviously, I know Joe Biden didn't tweet this himself or come up with it because that's not an option for Joe Biden. But he wrote, as we approach the anniversary of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, I'm in Kyiv today to meet with President Zelensky and reaffirm our unwavering commitment to Ukraine's democracy, sovereignty and territorial integrity. Representative Joyce Beatty wrote, when Putin launched his brutal invasion of Ukraine one year ago, he made a grave error. He believed his actions would divide the U.S. from our allies. Instead, as POTUS reiterated in his speech, we continue to stand strongly united with Ukraine. Democracy will always prevail. And so you get the picture. Viva Fry wrote, brutal invasion, but it's totally not scripted. It's totally not about manipulation and mind control. It's totally organic. Nothing to see here. And so what we have here is the global regime projecting its narrative, its perception of what Putin is doing as the perception of all Americans, or at least the Americans whose opinions they care about, the people who are allowed to think for themselves because the product of those people thinking for themselves always aligns with the agenda needs of the global regime. NATO this morning, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization themselves, this global governing military alliance, the collective military West, the people whose opinions are the most expert and therefore the only important opinions about what's happening in global affairs, wrote one of the most preposterous Twitter threads you could ever imagine. It starts with a picture of what we're led to believe is a Ukrainian soldier on the front lines. It says, I'd always been a journalist. On day two of Russia's full-scale invasion, I went and joined the armed forces of Ukraine. That's a quote from this guy. Apparently his name is Pavlo. And NATO writes, this is Pavlo's story. One of 10, a 10 tweet thread coming up. A true people's army, writes NATO, attached to another picture of Pavlo and his other buddies, I guess. The quote is, it contained ordinary workers and company directors, parents and their children, school teachers, theater people, and new university graduates. The thread goes on with another lovely picture of old Pavlo. And this quote says, people bring knowledge and skills from their civilian professions into the army. As no one had got round to telling them it cannot be done, they set about creating new ways of solving problems. They follow with a picture of what looks like a tank somehow stuck in the middle of a lake or other various muck. And the quote here is, once you reach the front line, you come to an important realization. Whether you survive is mainly a matter of luck. Training can improve your odds. So can practice and experience. Then they have a picture of a couple of cranes that I guess must have 
pulled the tank out of the muck. And the quote on this tweet is Russia continues to mobilize and does not count its losses. Ukraine is left playing David to an aggressive Goliath. They go on with a beautiful picture of a Ukrainian flag in the sunshine. And it says Moscow tried to divide Ukraine, but achieved the opposite. Then our guy Pavlo shares a picture of a bombed out building and It says if Russia loses and Moscow gets its way, the domino effect might be felt around the world. Then we see a beautiful picture of Ukrainian soldiers in a trench. One of them seems to be using binoculars to look at a mound of dirt. And it says differences become secondary. The quote from Pavlo. There are hundreds of thousands of soldiers in trenches. Millions of their friends and relations are at home without power. In these circumstances, it doesn't matter what your language is. Well, okay, except for the fact that Ukrainian Nazis are currently trying to exterminate Russian speaking people in the eastern half of Ukraine. The next tweet says Ukraine is hosting one of the greatest epics of this century. And the picture is of people walking through a bombed out town. The quote from Pavlo is. We are Harry Potter and William Wallace, the Navi and Han Solo. We're escaping from Shawshank and blowing up the Death Star. We are fighting with the Harkonnens and challenging Thanos. So apparently what we're seeing in Ukraine is not one movie. It's all movies. And Ukraine represents the good guys fighting the bad guys in every movie you've ever thought about. Do you like Harry Potter? Well, we're the good guys in Harry Potter. Did you like Braveheart? Well, we're the good guys in Braveheart. How about Star Wars? Did you like Star Wars? Hey, we're the good guys. Remember Shawshank Redemption? Escaping from that prison? Well, we're the escapee. And whatever reference to the Marvel movie that is, I don't know or care because I don't watch Marvel movies, mostly because I'm an adult, but also because I watched one or two and they're absolutely terrible. Hey, Sorry, guys. Now you're mad at me. Oh, no. I'm expressing my real opinion. Your feedback is you don't like that opinion. Now we disagree. My feedback to you is I don't like your opinion. And we're just going to have to move on disagreeing. And it's going to be okay. And then we reach the final tweet in this NATO thread. It is our good buddy Pavlo standing in what looks like a wheat field wearing dark Brandon-esque aviator glasses. And He says, we haven't won yet, but in many ways we have won. And of course, that doesn't make any sense at all, but it doesn't need to because it's supposed to make you feel things. You're supposed to understand that no matter what context you put any of this in, put it in the context of your favorite movie, you will realize that the Ukrainians are the good guys no matter what. And they link to his full story. Here's a couple little paragraphs from that that weren't covered in NATO's tweet thread. Yet all this is about a lot more than Ukraine itself. The result of the confrontation will not just determine the borders of my country. This war will make the rules of behavior for a century. The question, can war be an instrument of politics in the 21st century, is being decided on the battlefield at this moment. If Ukraine loses and Moscow gets its way, the domino effect might be felt around the world. Might be. Let me repeat. None of the optimism I've shared here means the current war will end anytime soon. 
The wars in Bosnia and Croatia lasted four years. The Korean War was three years. In Vietnam, France fought for eight years, and so did the United States. So it is best we are ready for this war to be a marathon and not a sprint. Hoping for a deus ex machina is not going to work. A year into the invasion, we know that. Therefore, the war in Ukraine has ceased to be a matter for the military only. The front is being held by volunteers, business people, IT specialists, pensioners, taxpayers, people who search through the rubble after missile strikes. And all of them are the good guys in Harry Potter, too. But the point is, no matter what context they're in, they're the good guys. Now, I don't know how or why the Western Military Alliance, NATO, is publishing this as a tweet thread, except for the fact that they want to impress the only people they care about. And to impress those people, all you need to do is make them feel the right emotions so that they will express that indeed you are correct based on their emotional response. Everyone else might think that the world's leading military alliance might be expected to take things more seriously than this. But hey, the people whose opinions they care about love Harry Potter, and that's all there is to it. So we have the perspective of the global regime on what the global regime is doing. But how is the global regime perceived elsewhere by other people, other groups, other nations? This is from the conservative treehouse today, Sundance writing headline. Hungary's Viktor Orban does not want to participate in Western effort to escalate war against Russia. And because of that, he's now a bigger target than ever. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban is not willing to join the NATO alliance in pushing further escalation of war against Russia. Now we begin to connect the dots, see the bigger picture and understand exactly why Samantha Power is running an operation inside Hungary with the unspoken intent of destabilizing the Hungarian population against the government. A quote from the Daily Mail. Hungary's far-right Prime Minister Viktor Orban snubbed Wednesday's meeting in Warsaw with President Joe Biden and the other Bucharest Nine leaders after insisting Donald Trump was the only person who could broker peace with Vladimir Putin. And that is obviously true. Even Trump haters likely know that that is true at this point. Orban has been an outlier on the war in Ukraine chiding the European Union for prolonging the conflict and saying in October that only former President Donald Trump could negotiate a deal between the Ukrainians and Russians to end the conflict. This is going to sound brutal, but hope for peace goes by the name of Donald Trump, Orban said at the time, arguing Biden wasn't the man for the job because he has, quote, gone too far in calling Russian President Vladimir Putin, quote, a war criminal. Follow the bouncing ball of consequence. Hungary has been in the crosshairs of the Biden-Obama administration ever since Prime Minister Viktor Orban refused to align with the World Economic Forum Western democracies in their quest for regime change against Russia. Hungarian Prime Minister Orban would not join. In early April 2022, Orban was overwhelmingly reelected despite the massive efforts against him by the European Union, Western and Eurocentric multinational globalists. As a result of the victory, Brussels was furious at the Hungarian people, quoting the Associated Press. 
Orban, a fierce critic of immigration, LGBTQ rights and EU bureaucrats, has garnered the admiration of right wing nationalists across Europe and North America. Within the statements reported from his 2022 victory speech, Prime Minister Orban warned citizens of the NATO and Western allied countries about the manipulation of Ukraine and how he views the Zelensky regime, quoting the Associated Press once again. While speaking to supporters on Sunday, Orban singled out Zelensky as part of the overwhelming force that he said his party had struggled against in the election. The left at home, the international left, the Brussels bureaucrats, the Soros empire with all its money, the international mainstream media, and in the end, even the Ukrainian president. Now, Orban is describing the same global regime that I describe on this podcast. I, of course, am a conspiracy theorist. And according to the people in the global regime, people like Sam Harris, I am not an expert, therefore not allowed to express my opinion. And if I express an opinion contrary to theirs, I am unqualified. I am a conspiracy theorist. I am a liar. I am a Putin propagandist, blah, 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 blah. And apparently so, too, is the elected prime minister of another country. His opinion is also invalid, even while leading a country of free people who elected him. This put Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban in the crosshairs of the Western alliance, specifically the EU and U.S. bureaucrats who use their power, position and intelligence apparatus to maintain foreign nations. A year later, and now we see USAID administrator Samantha Power in Hungary openly discussing her seating of the NGOs and political activist systems in order to generate yet another color revolution. Samantha Power, the wife of Cass Sunstein, is well known as the Obama-Biden administration's advance operative who uses her position in U.S. government to influence activism in targeted nations. Hungary is now a target. See the construct? So to normal people, the perception of all this would be that the global regime is running the color revolution playbook in yet another country again. And most normal, rational people who understand the concepts related to the global agenda and color revolutions would immediately see that that is, in fact, what is happening here. But to the global regime, they're just supporting democratic activists against an autocratic leader. It doesn't matter that the normal people wanted Orban in that position. The normal people don't have a right to speak. They're not involved in the conversation. The global regime's perception of itself is that it is fixing the world for everyone else. And they try to enforce that perception in our name. Other countries and other people don't see it that way at all. And then we have this. Samantha Power tweeted this this morning, and there's a video attached that I'll play in a second. But she writes on February 25th. Nigerians head to the polls. The United States stands with you as you choose your next leaders. Hashtag Nigeria decides. And unrelated, Samantha Power is quite a handsome woman. Kind of looks a little bit like John Kerry, to be honest. But here's the video. And the voices you'll hear are Anthony Blinken, the, the Secretary of State in the illegitimate administration, Samantha Power, and then a woman named Linda Thomas Greenfield, who is the fake administration's ambassador to the U.N. 
Nigeria's constitution, like America's, begins with a simple and profound idea, we the people. And during this election, you, the people of Nigeria, have a chance to make your voices heard, to choose your future. The United States does not support any individual candidate for office. But we strongly support a peaceful election that reflects the will of the people of Nigeria. Because free and fair elections in Nigeria help create a freer and fairer world for everyone. Your vote matters. This election matters. Not only to Nigerians, but to the rest of the world. We're invested in your success. Our shared democratic futures depend on it. Go to inecnigeria.org to prepare to vote because your voice matters. The Nigerian people have a friend and partner in the United States of America. So what in the world is this? Are the Nigerian people going to watch this video and be like, thank goodness, the American deep state foreign policy community really does have our best interests at heart and are helping us to vote? Well, no, that would be utterly absurd. Could you imagine watching a video where the British royal family tried to provide us resources so that we could go out and vote in our elections? That would be utterly absurd. And of course, the people around the world who are not part of the global regime would find this utterly absurd. The enforced perspective, the enforced viewpoint would be that this is actually pro-democracy and we're doing everything we can help. We're announcing our support of the Nigerian people as they head to the polls. We want to make sure the election is free and fair and secure and produces a result that represents the will of the people. Or in other words, the elements of the global regime tasked with overthrowing countries and stealing elections is about to attempt to steal Nigeria's election. But hey, who cares about the perspective of the people of Nigeria? They don't get to weigh in. They're not experts. They don't actually have the ability to do their own research on who should be president of their nation. The Wall Street Journal today ran this story. The headline, U.S. to expand troop presence in Taiwan for training against China threat. The U.S. is markedly increasing the number of troops deployed to Taiwan, more than quadrupling the current number to bolster a training program for the island's military amid a rising threat from China. The U.S. plans to deploy between 100 and 200 troops to the island in the coming months, up from roughly 30 there a year ago, according to U.S. officials. The larger force will expand a training program the Pentagon has taken pains not to publicize, as the U.S. works to provide Taipei with the capabilities it needs to defend itself without provoking Beijing. The number of American troops, which has included special operations forces and U.S. Marines, has fluctuated by a handful during the past few years, according to Defense Department data. The planned increase would be the largest deployment of forces in decades by the U.S. on Taiwan as the two draw closer to counter China's growing military power. And that's interesting because why in the world is it the mission of the United States to counter China's growing military power? on Taiwan, which even according to U.S. policy is part of China. The U.S. formally ascribes to the one China policy. But we also take the non-formal position that Taiwan is simultaneously part of China, but also its own country 
that must be defended from China. In many ways, it is a mirror of the situation that we're dealing with in terms of Russia and Ukraine. And the article goes on at length. Please read it if you are so inclined. But it's an interesting development and one worth keeping our eye on. From the perspective of the global regime, they have interests in Taiwan that must be protected. And so what they project to the world is that Taiwan is an independent nation. China is about to invade it, and it is up to us to protect democracy. That is what's being spread around the world in our name. But what about China's perspective? I'm not bringing this up to say that China has the right perspective, But certainly, if we're going to have a conversation about this issue, we should know what the other perspective is, right? How does China perceive us? Well, the foreign ministry of the PRC has released a report called U.S. Hegemony and its Perils. And obviously, this is going to be a biased viewpoint. You can even assume that on some level, it's just propaganda. But it's still worth knowing because we have to know what the other perspective is in order to judge the validity of our own perspective, particularly when that perspective is handed down from the same authorities that hands down our perspective on everything else. The introduction. Since becoming the world's most powerful country after the two world wars and the Cold War, the United States has acted more boldly to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, pursue, maintain, and abuse hegemony, advance subversion and infiltration, and willfully wage wars, bringing harm to the international community. The United States has developed a hegemonic playbook to stage color revolutions, instigate regional disputes, and even directly launch wars under the guise of promoting democracy, freedom, and human rights. Clinging to the Cold War mentality, the United States has ramped up block politics and stoked conflict and confrontation. It has overstretched the concept of national security, abused export controls, and forced unilateral sanctions upon others. It has taken a selective approach to international law and rules, utilizing or discarding them as it sees fit, and has sought to impose rules that serve its own interests in the name of upholding a, quote, rules-based international order. This report, by presenting the relevant facts, seeks to expose the U.S. abuse of hegemony in the political, military, economic, financial, technological, and cultural fields, and to draw greater international attention to the perils of the U.S. practices to world peace and stability and the well-being of all peoples. So naturally, the global regime would deny all of that, but nothing the Chinese foreign ministry has said in this introduction can be dismissed out of hand whatsoever. Most of what they just said is true. Section 1, Political Hegemony throwing its weight around. The United States has long been attempting to mold other countries and the world order with its own values and political system in the name of promoting democracy and human rights. Instances of U.S. interference in other countries' internal affairs abound. In the name of promoting democracy, the United States practiced a neo-Monroe doctrine in Latin America, instigated color revolutions in Eurasia, and orchestrated the Arab Spring in West Asia and North Africa, bringing chaos and disaster to many countries. We were told the Arab Spring was the most beautiful thing ever, and that legacy social media platforms played a huge role in enabling the Arab Spring. That was the global regime's perspective 
Other countries don't seem to see it that way. In 1823, the U.S. announced the Monroe Doctrine while touting an America for the Americans. What it truly wanted was an America for the United States. Since then, the policies of successive U.S. governments toward Latin America and the Caribbean region have been riddled with political interference, military intervention and regime subversion from its 61 year hostility toward and blockade of Cuba to its overthrow of the Allende government of Chile. U.S. policy on this region has been built on one maxim. Those who submit will prosper. Those who resist shall perish. And that does sound an awful lot like the global regime we have come to know. The year 2003 marked the beginning of a succession of color revolutions. The Rose Revolution in Georgia, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, and the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan. The U.S. Department of State openly admitted to playing a central role in these regime changes. The U.S. also interfered in the internal affairs of the Philippines, ousting President Ferdinand Marcos Sr. in 1986 and President Joseph Estrada in 2001 through the so-called People Power Revolutions. In January 2023, former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo released his new book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. He revealed in it that the United States had plotted to intervene in Venezuela. The plan was to force the Maduro government to reach an agreement with the opposition, deprive Venezuela of its ability to sell oil and gold for foreign exchange, exert high pressure on its economy, and influence the 2018 presidential election. The U.S. exercises double standards on international rules, placing its self-interest first. The United States has walked away from international treaties and organizations and put its domestic law above international law. In April 2017, the Trump administration announced that it would cut off all U.S. funding to the United Nations Population Fund with the excuse that the organization, quote, supports or participates in the management of a program of coercive abortion or involuntary sterilization. The United States quit UNESCO twice in 1984 and 2017. In 2017, it announced leaving the Paris Agreement on climate change. In 2018, it announced its exit from the UN Human Rights Council, citing the organization's bias against Israel and failure to protect human rights effectively. In 2019, the United States announced its withdrawal from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty to seek unfettered development of advanced weapons. In 2020, it announced pulling out of the treaty on open skies. And by the way, I am fine with us getting out of treaties because I don't want to be any part of the global order. The United States has also been a stumbling block to biological arms control by opposing negotiations on a verification protocol for the Biological Weapons Convention and impeding international verification of countries' activities relating to biological weapons. As the only country in possession of a chemical weapons stockpile, the United States has repeatedly delayed the destruction of chemical weapons and remained reluctant in fulfilling its obligations. It has become the biggest obstacle to realizing, quote, a world free of chemical weapons. The United States is piecing together small blocks through its alliance system. It has been forcing an Indo-Pacific strategy onto the Asia-Pacific region, assembling exclusive clubs like the Five Eyes, the Quad, and AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, which is Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and forcing regional countries to take sides. Such practices are essentially meant to create division in the region, stoke confrontation, and undermine peace. 
The U.S. arbitrarily passes judgment on democracy in other countries and fabricates a false narrative of democracy versus authoritarianism to incite estrangement, division, rivalry, and confrontation. In December 2021, the United States hosted the first Summit for Democracy, which drew criticism and opposition from many countries for making a mockery of the spirit of democracy and dividing the world. In March 2023, the United States will host another summit for democracy, which remains unwelcome and will again find no support. Part two, military hegemony. The history of the United States is characterized by violence and expansion. Since it gained independence in 1776, the United States has constantly sought expansion by force. It slaughtered Indians, invaded Canada, waged a war against Mexico, instigated the American-Spanish War, and annexed Hawaii. After World War II, the wars either provoked or launched by the United States included the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, the Kosovo War, the war in Afghanistan, the Iraq War, the Libyan War, and the Syrian War abusing its military hegemony to pave the way for expansionist objectives. In recent years, the U.S. average annual military budget has exceeded 700 billion U.S. dollars, accounting for 40 percent of the world's total, more than the 15 countries behind it combined. The United States has about 800 overseas military bases with 173,000 troops deployed in 159 countries. According to the book, America invades how we've invaded or been militarily involved with almost every country on earth. The United States has fought or been militarily involved with almost all the 190 odd countries recognized by the United Nations with only three exceptions. The three countries were spared because the United States did not find them on the map. And that's actually kind of hilarious. As former U.S. President Jimmy Carter put it, the United States is undoubtedly the most warlike nation in the history of the world. According to a Tufts University report, introducing the Military Intervention Project, a new data set on U.S. military inventions, 1776 through 2019, the United States undertook nearly 400 military inventions globally between those years, 34% of which were in Latin America and the Caribbean, 23% in East Asia and the Pacific, 14% in the Middle East and North Africa, and 13% in Europe. Currently, its military intervention in the Middle East and North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa is on the rise. Alex Lowe, a South China Morning Post columnist, pointed out that the United States has rarely distinguished between diplomacy and war since its founding. It overthrew democratically elected governments in many developing countries in the 20th century and immediately replaced them with pro-American puppet regimes. Today in Ukraine, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Pakistan, and Yemen, the United States is repeating its old tactics of waging proxy, low intensity, and drone wars. U.S. military hegemony has caused humanitarian tragedies. Since 2001, the wars and military operations launched by the United States in the name of fighting terrorism have claimed over 900,000 lives, with some 335,000 of them civilians, injured millions, and displaced tens of millions. The 2003 Iraq war resulted in some 200 to 250,000 civilian casualties, including over 16,000 directly killed by the U.S. military and left more than a million homeless. The United States has created 37 million refugees around the world. Since 2012, the number of Syrian refugees alone has increased tenfold. 
Between 2016 and 2019, 33,584 civilian deaths were documented in the Syrian fightings, including 3,833 killed by U.S.-led coalition bombings, half of them women and children. The Public Broadcasting Service reported on 9 November 2018 that the airstrikes launched by U.S. forces on Raqqa alone killed 1,600 Syrian civilians. The two decades-long war in Afghanistan devastated the country. A total of 47,000 Afghan civilians and 66,000 to 69,000 Afghan soldiers and police officers, unrelated to the September 11th attacks, were killed in U.S. military operations, and more than 10 million people were displaced. The war in Afghanistan destroyed the foundation of economic development there and plunged the Afghan people into destitution. After the Kabul debacle in 2021, the United States announced that it would freeze some $9.5 billion in assets belonging to the Afghan Central Bank, a move considered as pure looting. In September 2022, Turkish Interior Minister Suleiman Soylu commented at a rally that the United States has waged a proxy war in Syria, turning Afghanistan into an opium field and heroin factory throwing Pakistan into turmoil and left Libya in incessant civil unrest. The United States does whatever it takes to rob and enslave the people of any country with underground resources. The United States has also adopted appalling methods in war. During the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, the Kosovo War, the war in Afghanistan and the Iraq War, the United States used massive quantities of chemical and biological weapons, as well as cluster bombs, fuel air bombs, graphite bombs, and depleted uranium bombs, causing enormous damage on civilian facilities, countless civilian casualties, and lasting environmental pollution. Part 3. Economic Hegemony looting and exploitation. After World War II, the United States led efforts to set up the Bretton Woods system, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, which together with the Marshall Plan formed the international monetary system centered around the U.S. dollar. In addition, the United States has also established institutional hegemony in the international economic and financial sector by manipulating the weighted voting systems, rules and arrangements of international organizations, including approval by 85% majority, and its domestic trade laws and regulations. By taking advantage of the dollar's status as the major international reserve currency, the United States is basically collecting signorage from around the world and using its control over international organizations. It coerces other countries into serving America's political and economic strategy. The United States exploits the world's wealth with the help of signorage. It costs only about 17 cents to produce a $100 bill, but other countries had to pony up $100 of actual goods in order to obtain one. It was pointed out more than half a century ago that the United States enjoyed exorbitant privilege and deficit without tears created by its dollar and used the worthless paper note to plunder the resources and factories of other nations. The hegemony of the U.S. dollar is the main source of instability and uncertainty in the world economy. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the United States abused its global financial hegemony and injected trillions of dollars into the global market, leaving other countries, especially emerging economies, to pay the price. In 2022, the Fed ended its ultra-easy monetary policy and turned 
to aggressive interest rate hikes, causing turmoil in the international financial market and substantial depreciation of other currencies such as the euro, many of which dropped to a 20-year low. As a result, the large number of developing countries were challenged by high inflation, currency depreciation, and capital outflows. This was exactly what Nixon's Secretary of the Treasury, John Connolly, once remarked, with self-satisfaction yet sharp precision, that, quote, the dollar is our currency, but it's your problem. With its control over international economic and financial organizations, the United States imposes additional conditions to their assistance to other countries. In order to reduce obstacles to U.S. capital inflow and speculation, the recipient countries are required to advance financial liberalization and open up financial markets so that their economic policies would fall in line with America's strategy. According to the Review of International Political Economy, along with the 1,550 debt relief programs extended by the IMF to its 131 member countries from 1985 to 2014, as many as 55,465 additional political conditions had been attached. The United States willfully suppresses its opponents with economic coercion. In the 1980s, to eliminate the economic threat posed by Japan and to control and use the latter in service of America's strategic goal of confronting the Soviet Union and dominating the world, the United States leveraged its hegemonic financial power against Japan and concluded the Plaza Accord. As a result, the yen was pushed up and Japan was pressed to open its financial market and reform its financial system. The Plaza Accord dealt a heavy blow to the growth momentum of the Japanese economy, leaving Japan to what was later called three lost decades. America's economic and financial hegemony has become a geopolitical weapon, doubling down on unilateral sanctions and long arm jurisdiction. The United States has enacted such domestic laws as the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act, and the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, and introduced a series of executive orders to sanction specific countries, organizations, or individuals. Statistics show that U.S. sanctions against foreign entities increased by 933% from 2000 to 2021. The Trump administration alone has imposed more than 3,900 sanctions, which means three sanctions per day. So far, the United States had or has imposed economic sanctions on nearly 40 countries across the world, including Cuba, China, Russia, the DPRK, Iran and Venezuela, affecting nearly half of the world's population. The United States of America has turned itself into the United States of sanctions and long arm jurisdiction has been reduced to nothing but a tool for the United States to use its means of state power to suppress economic competitors and interfere in normal international business. This is a serious departure from the principles of liberal market economy that the United States has long boasted. Part four, technological hegemony, monopoly and suppression. The United States seeks to deter other countries' scientific, technological, and economic development by wielding monopoly power, suppression measures, and technology restrictions in high-tech fields. The United States monopolizes intellectual property in the name of protection, taking advantage of the weak position of other countries, especially developing ones, on intellectual property rights and the institutional vacancy in relevant fields. The United States reaps excessive profits through monopoly. In 1994, the United States pushed forward the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects 
of intellectual property rights, forcing the Americanized process and standards in intellectual property protection in an attempt to solidify its monopoly on technology. In the 1980s, to contain the development of Japan's semiconductor industry, the United States launched the 301 investigation, built bargaining power in bilateral negotiations through multilateral agreements, threatened to label Japan as conducting unfair trade, and imposed retaliatory tariffs, forcing Japan to sign the U.S.-Japan Semiconductor Agreement. As a result, Japanese semiconductor enterprises were almost completely driven out of global competition, and their market share dropped from 50% to 10%. Meanwhile, with the support of the U.S. government, a large number of U.S. semiconductor enterprises took the opportunity and grabbed larger market share. The United States politicizes, weaponizes technological issues and uses them as ideological tools. Overstretching the concept of national security, the United States mobilized state power to suppress and sanction Chinese company Huawei, restricted the entry of Huawei products into the U.S. market cut off its supply of chips and operating systems, and coerced other countries to ban Huawei from undertaking local 5G network construction. It even talked Canada into unwarrantedly detaining Huawei's CFO, Meng Wanzhou, for nearly three years. The United States has fabricated a slew of excuses to clamp down on China's high-tech enterprises with global competitiveness and has put more than a thousand Chinese enterprises on sanctions lists. In addition, the United States has also imposed controls on biotechnology, artificial intelligence, and other high-end technologies, reinforced export restrictions, tightened investment screening, suppressed Chinese social media apps such as TikTok and WeChat, and lobbied the Netherlands and Japan to restrict exports of chips and related equipment or technology to China. The United States has also practiced double standards on its policy on China-related technological professionals. To sideline and suppress Chinese researchers since June 2018, visa validity has been shortened for Chinese students majoring in certain high-tech related disciplines. Repeated cases have occurred where Chinese scholars and students going to the United States for exchange programs and study were unjustifiably denied and harassed, and large-scale investigation on Chinese scholars working in the United States was carried out. Now, again, I don't think any of this represents an objective viewpoint on what's happening, particularly in intellectual property, in technology, and most especially in U.S. student visas for Chinese students. But I'm not reading this claiming that this is an objective take. This is obviously a biased take from China's perspective. It's still important to know what they think about us. The United States abuses its technological hegemony by carrying out cyber attacks and eavesdropping. The United States has long been notorious as an empire of hackers, blamed for its rampant acts of cyber theft around the world. It has all kinds of means to enforce pervasive cyber attacks and surveillance, including using analog base station signals to access mobile phones for data theft, manipulating mobile apps, infiltrating cloud servers, and stealing through undersea cables. The list goes on. U.S. surveillance is indiscriminate. All targets of its surveillance, be they rivals or allies, even leaders of allied countries, such as former German Chancellor Angela Merkel and several French presidents. Cyber surveillance and attacks launched by the United States, such as PRISM, Dirtbox, Irritant Horn, and Telescreen Operation, 
are all proof that the United States is closely monitoring its allies and partners. Such eavesdropping on allies and partners has already caused worldwide outrage. Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, a website that has exposed U.S. surveillance programs, said that, quote, do not expect a global surveillance superpower to act with honor or respect. There is only one rule. There are no rules. Part five, cultural hegemony, spreading false narratives. The global expansion of American culture is an important part of its external strategy. The United States has often used cultural tools to strengthen and maintain its hegemony in the world. The United States embeds American values in its products, such as movies. American values and lifestyle are a tied product to its movies and TV shows, publications, media content, and programs by the government-funded nonprofit cultural institutions. It thus shapes a cultural and public opinion space in which American culture reigns and maintains cultural hegemony. In his article, The Americanization of the World, John Yemma, an American scholar, exposed the real weapons in U.S. cultural expansion, Hollywood, the image design factories on Madison Avenue, and the production lines of Mattel Company and Coca-Cola. There are various vehicles the United States uses to keep its cultural hegemony. American movies are the most used. They now occupy more than 70% of the world's market share. The United States skillfully exploits its cultural diversity to appeal to various ethnicities. When Hollywood movies descend on the world, they scream the American values tied to them. And this is pretty undeniable, by the way. Sometimes that's a good thing, depending on which American values are being expressed. We've seen in the last few years that that can be a bad thing. And when we are using the United States diversity to make these movies more appealing to people in other countries, then what's happening is the global regime through its proxy in America and the American part of the global regime's proxy in Hollywood. What we're doing is exporting the global regime's agenda through our culture to other nations who believe that their national identity is reflected in our cultural output. So the Chinese are right to note this, but as in other aspects of this report, they are doing the exact same thing. Certainly elements within China are. American cultural hegemony not only shows itself in direct intervention, but also in media infiltration and as a, quote, trumpet for the world. U.S. dominated Western media has a particularly important role in shaping global public opinion in favor of U.S. meddling in the internal affairs of other countries. And again, this is true, but it's not exactly accurate. I would say what they're actually talking about is the global regime and the state propaganda media of the global regime as it plays out through U.S. based channels. The U.S. government strictly censors all social media companies and demands their obedience. Twitter CEO Elon Musk admitted on 27 December 2022 that all social media platforms work with the U.S. government to censor content, reported Fox Business Network. Public opinion in the United States is subject to government intervention to restrict all unfavorable remarks. Google often makes pages disappear. And now, again, this is just flat out true. The U.S. government does do that. We are told that it's about the health of the public conversation. But to other countries, the United States looks like 
a regime that is oppressing the speech and human rights of its own citizens, and they're correct. U.S. Department of Defense manipulates social media. In December 2022, The Intercept, an independent U.S. investigative website, revealed that in July 2017, U.S. Central Command official Nathaniel Collar instructed Twitter's public policy team to augment the presence of 52 Arabic language accounts on a list he sent, six of which were to be given priority. Now, it's important to note that The Intercept, while it may be considered an independent outlet, is nonetheless owned by global regime icon Pierre Omidyar. One of the six was dedicated to justifying U.S. drone attacks in Yemen, such as by claiming that the attacks were precise and killed only terrorists, not civilians. Following Collar's directive, Twitter put those Arabic language accounts on a whitelist to amplify certain messages. The United States practices double standards on the freedom of the press. It brutally suppresses and silences media of other countries by various means. The United States and Europe bar mainstream Russian media, such as Russia Today and Sputnik, from their countries. Platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube openly restrict official accounts of Russia. Netflix, Apple, and Google have removed Russian channels and applications from their services and app stores. Unprecedented draconian censorship is imposed on Russia-related contents. The United States abuses its cultural hegemony to instigate peaceful evolution in socialist countries. It sets up news media and cultural outfits targeting socialist countries. It pours staggering amounts of public funds into radio and TV networks to support their ideological infiltration. And these mouthpieces bombard socialist countries in dozens of languages with inflammatory propaganda day and night. The United States uses misinformation as a spear to attack other countries and has built an industrial chain around it. There are groups and individuals making up stories and peddling them worldwide to mislead public opinion with the support of nearly limitless financial resources. And of course, they're right. The financial resources are unlimited because, as they mentioned earlier, we also control the finances and the money supply. And the conclusion, while a just cause wins its champion wide support, an unjust one condemns its pursuer to be an outcast. The hegemonic, domineering, and bullying practices of using strength to intimidate the weak, taking from others by force and subterfuge, and playing zero-sum games are exerting grave harm. The historical trends of peace, development, cooperation, and mutual benefit are unstoppable. The United States has been overriding truth with its power and trampling justice to serve self-interest. These unilateral, egoistic, and regressive hegemonic practices have drawn growing intense criticism and opposition from the international community. Countries need to respect each other and treat each other as equals. Big countries should behave in a manner befitting their status and take the lead in pursuing a new model of state-to-state -state relations featuring dialogue and partnership, not confrontation or alliance. China opposes all forms of hegemonism and power politics and rejects interference in other countries' internal affairs. The United States must conduct serious soul-searching. It must critically examine what it has done, let go of its arrogance and prejudice, and quit its hegemonic, domineering, and bullying practices. Now, again, there's plenty of that that you can turn directly back around on China 
and say legitimately, hey, China, that's what you're doing, too. In fact, this is what most countries do. You can even say that on some level, this is propaganda. You can even say, if you want, I don't believe this, but you could try to paint the entire thing as propaganda simply because this is directly the view from the foreign ministry of a country who is clearly our adversary and who operates in the realm of propaganda and disinformation, abuse of technology, theft of intellectual property, mistreatment of their own citizens. The list can go on and on about the CCP. But what you can't do is say that all of this isn't true. There are a lot of factual claims made in this report, and those are things that we as Americans should be prepared to reckon with. Maybe some of them we can justify. Maybe some of them we can say, well, these are America first policies, and it is the duty of American government to put forth America first policies. But at the same time, people who are capable of thinking for themselves do have a responsibility to understand what the other perspectives are. We can say that China is all wrong about every claim they make, but we can't pretend that China thinks that. China thinks this. And we don't have the option, no matter how much people like Sam Harris would like it, to dismiss all of this or somehow silence China. The truth is that the countries around the world who oppose the global regime and to whatever degree the global regime is a reflection of United States hegemony, also oppose the United States, do in fact have grievances, some of them legitimate, some of them maybe not. But no matter how much the global regime tries to exclude other viewpoints and say that that perspective is the only valid one and everything that the global regime produces is right, other countries do in fact get a vote. So their perspective matters and we should understand it, particularly when we are pretending that we're about to go to war with them. Apologies, but there will be no show tomorrow. At the end of the week, I'm probably going to miss a couple of episodes because I am attending CPAC with my good friend Patrick Gunnels. But for now, I'll be back Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree linktree.com slash I'm your moderator and I'll see you soon out on the range
In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!